0: The speaker last year had to wear a crash helmet for the last session after uh, John was finished with him. Um, I thought I was going to have to shave the beard and lose the laptop, but then, then we'd all be going home a little early. That was great fun. In fact, I'm so tired I laughed so much last night during that whole program. That was, that was great. All right, our last two talks, and I understand that at this stage in things you're thinking about packing up your room and getting ready to uh, head back to um, the real world, Uh, but these last two uh, subjects we want to address this morning are are very important, particularly as we think about uh, maintaining the uh, relationships that exist between us, not only in the church but in our families. Uh, So in this hour, we'll be talking about uh, developing an instinct for restoration, your brother's keeper, developing an instinct for restoration. And I'd like, as we begin, uh, before we pray, uh, just to read the first verse of Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for what you have taught us by your Spirit, speaking through the Word this week. Uh, Thank you for not only what we've been able to learn formally from our studies of the Scriptures, but also what has been discussed and prayed through. Um, In the morning uh, prayer times and uh, other family devotion settings that have taken place, Lord, you have given us a thirst, a new thirst, for uh, preserving and and developing the uh, expression of the unity that we have in Christ. And uh, we pray that you will give us grace and help us to carry that uh, desire with us and communicate it to our brothers and sisters uh, who have not been here. Uh, so that we might uh, grow in that sweet fellowship uh, that you describe uh, like the perfumed oil that was poured upon the head, running down upon his beard and his robes, even Aaron the high priest. We we so delight in that metaphor, and we want it to come to real expression in the life of our churches and in the life of our regional church. And so grant it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ba, 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 ba. Should I wrap this message maybe? I would if I had any rhythm, but as we know, Orthodox Presbyterians need clapping lessons. I mean, isn't that isn't that pathetic? Terrible, terrible. Uh, in his book on marriage, Walter Wangren, uh, the book entitled uh, As for Me and My House says that the most important, indeed indispensable skill that any couple needs to learn is how to seek and grant forgiveness. And the reason that he says that is that because in any marriage, no matter how happily begun, sin will express itself over and over and over again. So the relationship will be strained and there will be breaches in even that intimate relationship. So knowing how to overcome the disruptive effects of sin is critical. Uh, and yet so few couples really master that skill. And I would remind you again of what I said in one of the previous messages. There's there's so much distance between learning it from a book and developing it as a skill and then raising it to the form of an instinctive art and that's really what we need to do as we learn to live the Christian life. We can all go to the Bible, we can read the verses, we can listen to a sermon, and, and you know, I would be very surprised if I said much of anything this whole week long that most of you have not heard in one way or another at some time or other. Uh, living the Christian life is not a matter of blazing new insights. It's learning over and over and over again, you know when I was younger, I always thought if I could preach the perfect sermon, then people they 'd just be fine and uh, it was It was wonderful to see that week after week after week after week after week of just plain, ordinary messages from god 's word causes us to grow and to become more fruitful in ways that the best conference you 've ever gone to in your whole life will not accomplish so it 's all about repetition, training in righteousness. Well, what's true of the marriage relationship, as you well know, is equally true, maybe even more true, of our relationships within the body of Christ, uh, in our local congregations and beyond. Sin will disrupt our peaceful unity. You can count on it absolutely. And so the question is, will we be able to overcome the disintegrating effects of sin? Your local church, and each one of you as members of that local church, has to develop its corporate immune system. Sin is the infection, and learning to seek and to grant forgiveness is the immune system that helps us identify and isolate and then counteract the effects of sin that will inevitably arise within us. Think of yourself personally. How do you respond when you are hurt by someone? Your feelings are hurt, you're neglected, you're misunderstood, you're slandered. What's your first reaction? Do you blow up? Do you chew somebody out? Do you freeze up? Do you withdraw? Do you isolate yourself? Do you think about how you're going to get even in one way or another with the person who has hurt you? What's your first reaction to those kinds of experiences? Or on the other hand, when someone comes to confront you, about something that is wrong with your life? Do you become immediately defensive? Do you make them prove it beyond a shadow of doubt? Or are you humble and willing and easily entreated? We need to develop a first response system that will involve a quickness to hear, as James urges us, a humble receptivity, a willingness to... You know, it's, it's amazing for people who start out our summary of our theological convictions with T for total depravity, we behave so often like we're really not sinners. I mean, what's up with that? Uh, When someone comes and says, you know, you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in one way or another, we ought to say, duh, instead of saying, no, it was His fault. No, I was just tired or sick or whatever else we do to excuse ourselves. Blame shift. So, we need to be humbly receptive, We have to have a willingness to repent. Why is repenting so threatening? Uh, And then an eagerness to forgive when we're on the side of, or on the other side, and someone asks for our forgiveness rather than saying, No, you're really going to have to suffer a while before I'm going to let you back into my good graces. And this has to become instinctive, it has to become a matter of deep seated skill as a result of discipline training. I've known a couple of guys in my life who were instinctive evangelists. Uh, I think of John Fickert, who was for some time the uh, denominational evangelist, and Jack Miller, who was one of my professors in seminary. When I go to McDonald's, I'm looking at the menu, trying to decide what I want to eat and how quickly it's going to clog my arteries and how quick I can get in and get out. When those guys went into McDonald's, They didn't study the menu, they studied the clientele, and they were already trying to decide who they were going to sit down next to, strike up a conversation with, so that they could begin to introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we need that kind of instinct for reconciliation as well, so that whenever something surfaces in our midst that disrupts our fellowship, we're going to be right there. Not as busybodies, not as little judges to pass judgment, but as ones who are eager to see the disruptions of sin overcome in our lives. And so that's what we're going to talk about uh, for a little bit this morning in this message. How do we develop that motivation, that attitude, that instinct that is eager to restore? You know as well as I do that the Bible is very concerned about motives and attitudes of heart, as well as about words and actions. And God gives us many, many reasons why we ought to see the importance and the blessedness and the goodness of being uh, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we've talked about many of those incentives during the course of our message, um, uh, messages this week. And, and now we'll, we'll see how God motivates us and encourages us to this good work of seeking uh, reconciliation uh, in the midst of uh, our fellowships. So, in the first place, like your good shepherd, you must develop an instinct for shepherding one another, seeking and finding that which is lost. If you turn to Matthew chapter eighteen, verse ten, there we um, read, "See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always." see the face of my Father who is in heaven. There's a textual question about verse 11, but let me read it anyway. For the Son of Man came to save the lost. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Your concern to seek and to recover a straying brother or sister ought to parallel the concern of your heavenly Father. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven, Jesus says, that even one of these little ones should perish. Jesus' exhortation there in verse 10, do not look down on one of these little ones, is a challenging one. Any attitude on our part of indifference or neglect, much less vindictiveness or abusiveness, directed toward another believer particularly when they are struggling with temptation or stumbling or straying, is a symptom of that kind of looking down on uh, another which Jesus here prohibits. Here we can see again our Savior's concern for His little ones. And it's not children particularly which are in view in this passage. I think B.B. B. Warfield has argued convincingly in his little article on Christ's little ones, that Jesus here is speaking about all of His disciples in that tender care that He has for them as if they were little children. The attitude of the Heavenly Father is one of deep compassion and loving concern. Jesus says the angels of these little ones stand before the Father's face in heaven. And I I really can't go very far down this sidetrack, but again, Warfield addresses it in some of his writings. Um, some have suggested that Jesus is referring to angels that we would consider to be guardian angels. Um, it appears, though, that it's, it's more the idea of their spirits not as disembodied spirits, but kind of as their representation. In Acts chapter 12, verses 14 through 16, where the disciples think it must be Peter's angel banging on the door for admittance. Remember, Peter's in prison. The church is praying for him. He shows up at the front door, and uh, and they won't let him in at first. But in, in the meantime, it says in the text that they thought it was his angel. Um, so it's something like that that stands immediately before the presence of the Heavenly Father. And uh, so the angel, at least as Warfield describes it, is some kind of recognizable identity of a person, but not their actual physical presence. The central point, though, is that the Father takes the most direct and personal interest in the well-being of these little ones. Therefore, you and I should take that same care as we shepherd one another and those of us who are leaders in the church as we shepherd the congregation and live as examples to the flock. Every one of the sheep should also imitate this same concern. There's more than that. In verse 14, Jesus says, the Father is not willing to lose any of His sheep. Jesus' comment here has reference to the flock, the people of God as covenantally identified. Now, God's ordained process of shepherding and uh, discipline, when it's faithfully practiced, will have the effect of distinguishing the true sheep from the false. That is, the goats, as they're described in Matthew 25:32, Or, much more, the wolves in sheep's clothing. Those who hear and heed the voice of the Good Shepherd will be separated from those who will not as the process of our admonishing and exhorting one another goes on. That process will also distinguish true shepherds from false, the mere hirelings that Jesus speaks about in John 10. Notice the contrast, the contrasting reasons for thinking that you can afford to lose a lamb. The hireling is just looking at the acceptable losses Because he's looking at dollar signs. But the true shepherd, for them, or for true shepherds, the loss is personal. And he is um, hesitant. He abhors the idea that he would lose any one of the sheep entrusted to him. So the father's never willing to lose even one of his true sheep. There are no acceptable losses in tending God's flock. And so Jesus said, and could say rightly at the end of his earthly ministry, in a way that none of us, because of our failures, will be able to say, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So God has that concern, and I think sometimes, you know, when we're on the outs with one another, we just think, okay, I can live without this relationship. It's all right if we're not reconciled. Um, it might be nice if it was easy, but it's going to be hard. It's going to be embarrassing. It may be costly. And so I'll just let it go. And as we let those relationships drift apart, now obviously sometimes people move away and there are other uh, providential factors, but particularly in our, in our local churches, if we've just decided that we don't have to be so close to so-and-so anymore, we really are saying that there are acceptable losses because there may be sin involved that's detrimental to that other person's life, not just whether they've happened to hurt you or abused you in some way. So, against the background of the Father's concern always to be seeking and reaching out for those who are straying and our Savior's good shepherdly attitude along those same lines, God has given us a methodology for effectively seeking and restoring the one who is straying even at the expense of the many. And here Jesus gives that little parable of the ninety-nine, that uh, and the one that goes astray. What do you think, Jesus asks? How do you think a man will act if he loses a sheep, especially if he only loses one out of a hundred? Well, it depends. It depends on whether that person is a shepherd or whether that person is a hired servant. The disciples are being called in this to be shepherds of God's flock. Of course, if they are true shepherds, they will seek, they will recover, and they will rejoice in the One that is restored. Can that be said of you? Could we say, of course, you so imitate the heart of your shepherd Savior that you will seek, you will do all that you can to recover, and you will rejoice in the restoration of the one who was strayed. It's not numbers or convenience or the dangers that threaten us that are in view. The shepherd acts because of the need of the straying sheep in order to restore that one. It is love and concern for the true need of the weak and wandering sheep. And so, for that reason to neglect... For any reason, whether it's fear or indifference, is terribly wrong on our part. It's sin. It robs you and the person who could be restored of the prospect of joy in that wonderful recovery. Now, this is a metaphor, the shepherd seeking the lost sheep. And you know, it goes on uh, um, uh, all kinds of religious art, the the good shepherd seeking the lost sheep. Um, But it's explained... In this context, and we'll talk more about this in in the next hour, but just so that you see it here in context, this, this metaphor of shepherding is unpacked in Jesus' description of the process of discipline outlined beginning in verse 15. But we need to see that the process has to be understood through the lens of the metaphor. When we think about following Matthew 18, and that's the slogan that we use, right? Oh, you should have followed Matthew 18. Or do I have to follow Matthew 18? That's the one that always gets me. Do I have to follow Matthew 18 in this case? Well, it depends on whether you want to be a shepherd or whether you want to be a hired servant. If you're just a hired servant, no. You can find any excuse you can that will justify in your own mind not following Matthew 18. But you see, when you follow Matthew 18, you're not just following Matthew. Verse 15 and following, you're following verse 10 and following as well. And so we need to see... I mean, imagine if this was a different metaphor. If that same description of going to your brother privately and then going with two or three witnesses and then taking it to the church. If that's if that's what we're supposed to do, but Jesus wants to sell this procedure to us. He wants to motivate us to this procedure. What if He had used a different metaphor? Even a different biblical metaphor. How about something like striking the enemies of God down with a mighty sword? Boy, then we could get into it, couldn't we? Alright, now I'm going to get them! In the Lord's name, I'm going to get him. You see, Jesus could have described the process in any number of ways. He chose to describe it in terms of a shepherd tenderly seeking to restore a straying brother or sister, a straying sheep. And, and I think it's so very important in learning how to follow the procedure that we learn it with a shepherd's heart, that we learn it with that desire to seek and to save that which is lost. I mean, I, I don't think the phrase, do I have to follow Matthew 18, will ever slip through your lips again if you have that kind of love for one another. I think even in matters of public sin, when we all sort of admit, well, if it's really a notorious public sin, then we can hammer somebody in public right off the bat. Now, even then, going to seek and to restore personally and privately is the best place to start. By seeking and recovering the straying lamb, who is your brother or sister in Christ, each of you enters in, in your own way, to the mission of Jesus, because Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Verse 11 is omitted from some modern versions. It reads, and I read it earlier, The Son of Man came to save what was lost. This verse does not appear in most of the best ancient manuscripts. It's probably not in this place originally. It was borrowed somewhere early on from Luke chapter 19, verse 10. But this insertion does represent at least an ancient gloss, uh, an interpretive comparison, and it draws our attention back to Jesus and his mission as the good shepherd. So even though on textual reasons we would not necessarily say it's here, it's a good reminder that Jesus is the good shepherd who seeks the lost, and as we function as shepherds of one another, we are truly imitating Him. You know that in the Old Testament particularly, God frequently likens Himself to a shepherd, and Jesus described His own mission as one of seeking that which is lost, trying to restore it. By the faithful exercise of discipline then, particularly informal, uh, personal confrontation, seeking, recovering, restoring, you enter into Jesus' work. Not, of course, in terms of the accomplishment of redemption, not at all, but in a way, in its application, because you're going to take the forgiveness that is rooted in the work of Christ, and apply it in a personal relationship by seeking forgiveness from another or by granting forgiveness as you lead another to face their sins and failures and seek to be restored. The Holy Spirit Himself will create in you a heart for this important ministry of reconciliation. And as you practice it more and more and more, you'll get better at it it won't be so intimidating. It won't be so frightening. It won't take so much to get you going. And you'll do it in a desire, a real desire to see a person restored. The heart of the gospel, remember, is salvation. It's recovery. It's reconciliation for people who are not looking for it. We're not beating God's door down saying, please help us. Please have mercy on us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were estranged, He came looking for us. That's what drives then our desire to go and seek to restore one another as well. You are called as believers to seek and to save that which was lost in your own particular way as imitators of Christ. And you must apply these principles in the life of your local church body. Secondly, seeking to restore an erring brother is a ministry of humble, loving, helpfulness. Humble, loving, helpfulness. The responsibility of every Christian. And here I want to look back just for a moment to uh, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. I didn't pay close attention to when we started. Where are we up to here? Are we still going to stay on the same schedule or trying to? 10.30, okay, we're good, we're good. Um, sorry, you know, (laughs) that uh, Tetra joke last night, I uh, missed that because I didn't know what Tetra was, so sorry, Uh, everybody else got it though, John said he tried to pick a game that everybody would know and they all knew it except me, so I assure you I'm not playing Tetra up here, I'm just losing my place and it's not quite as easy to find this way, so The technology is a mixed blessing. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here the apostle calls us to a ministry of uh, of restoration, which should be carried out in a spirit of gentleness. At least that's the way the ESV and the King James and some other translations render it. Not just gently. That is, gentleness should be characteristic rather than a single isolated act. I mean, you all know people who are just grouches and grumps and hard to get along with, but at least for a particular person at a particular time, They can be very gentle. I mean, I've heard tell that Adolf Hitler was real sweet to Eva Braun. But you wouldn't have called him a gentle person. You wouldn't have characterized him as a a man who had a gentle spirit, not when you can gas millions of people to death. We need a spirit of gentleness, not just to be able to say every once in a while, well, I was really kind under those circumstances, and that takes some cultivation. Restore one another gently. When our son David, our oldest son, was very small, Um, he uh, pulled a pot of uh, almost boiling tea water off the uh, dinner table when we weren't looking and spilled it on his chest, and he scalded his chest. And it was a terribly painful injury. And uh, after we got him treated, we had to uh, change those dressings each day. And I remember that I had to hold him down and Sherry had to take those dressings off and then put them back on again for several weeks while the healing process went on. I can tell you we have never been more careful and gentle in our lives as administering that kind of process. Some things you can be rough about. But when you're trying to restore one another, that's the kind of gentleness, that's the kind of care that ought to be there in your heart. Now, we were that careful because we loved him very much. If you really love one another, you'll restore one another in a spirit of that kind of gentleness, that kind of care. Paul's description of the problem here in Galatians supports his emphasis on the need for gentleness, In the first place, he says, you're dealing with a brother or a sister. This is not an enemy, and this is something so important because when we're hurt, at least when I'm hurt, my initial reaction is this person is my enemy, at least momentarily. I never think, oh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. (laughs) I'm wounded, he must be my friend. No, I think, oh, why are they trying to get me? We need to be able to remind ourselves and train ourselves to remember that when we're working with each other within the body of Christ, we are brothers and sisters. We are not enemies, even when we may sinfully do unkind or sinful things toward one another. We're not even talking about neighbors here. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. But rather the brotherly affection that should be the operating principle for believers. John 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And again, John, 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So, restoration in a spirit of gentleness is, uh, is uh, required by the fact that we are dealing with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, this gentleness is required because Paul describes this brother or sister as caught in sin. Now, that's not to suggest that the other person may not be sinning, deliberately sinning, but to recognize that for all of us, as believers, sin is alien to our true nature now, even though we continue to wrestle with it as an indwelling reality. And so there is a sense that even when we are participating in sin, we're trapped. And and here the metaphor is like a beast of burden that's about to collapse under a load. You think of those pictures sometimes you see of... uh, Of third-world countries where maybe a donkey is going down and you know got wood piled up you know 8 or 10 or 20 or 30 feet you think how can that little fella carry that heavy load well maybe if you put one more stick on there he would collapse that's the picture and there's a danger then of even greater damage if care is not used in affecting the rescue if that little guy goes down You're going to have to unburden him so you can get him back on his feet again. If you go around to the business end and just whack him with one of those sticks and keep going until he gets up and gets moving again, you'll kill him. And when we are caught in sin, the last thing we need is somebody back there with the rod saying, come on, get going, get going, get going. Somebody has to lift a load, lift a load. Pharisees don't do that. Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? They like to pile the loads on and they won't lift one finger to help somebody carry it. And we're that way more often than we're admitting. So, if we're caught in sin, that's why we need to be gentle to help lift that burden. In a sense, you have to sometimes use the jaws of life on one another to open up the wreckage that sin causes so that you can release your brother or sister, through repentance and forgiveness from the trap. Now, I should mention here, and I'll mention it again next time, this is how we begin. Sometimes, as Jesus acknowledges, when you go in a spirit of gentleness and you do try to tenderly restore somebody, they blast you out of the water. They don't want to hear it. They don't want even a tender, gentle rebuke. And as the process of working with one another unfolds in the face of that stubbornness, God is willing to up the ante in terms of the strength of the confrontation until it finally comes to the church and may even issue informal church discipline. So, the way we begin isn't always the way we end. But, thanks be to God, if we begin this way, we solve 90% or more of the problems before we even get moving down the way because it's so easy to be restored. It's so easy to repent by someone who comes to you humbly, one sinner to another, and says, brother, I think I see this in your life. It's not right. Whether you've hurt them or not and they're seeking to help you carry that burden. And indeed, carrying burdens becomes explicit there in verse 2. You are to bear one another's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. You've got to Put your shoulder under the load. Helping your brother rid himself, your sister rid herself of the ensnaring sin by teaching them, perhaps, by rebuking them, perhaps, by correcting them, by training them through sustained accountability, whatever goes into the mix in each case, that's a duty that we must fulfill. It is the law of Christ. We cannot turn our back on it. In a deeper sense, your brother or sister is your burden. You are your brother's keeper. At least the old-timers are the people who like to watch Turner Classic movies. You know that very famous scene from Boys Town uh, when one of the young lads is carrying a, a little guy on his back and, and the priest says, boy, he must be heavy. And uh, the boy says, no, he's not heavy. He's my brother. We have the responsibility to bear one another's burdens. And this is the duty of all of you who are spiritual. And you might say, ah, good, that lets me off the hook, because I'm just ordinary. I'm not spiritual. And of course, if we lived uh, in a church whose theology was uh, developed in terms of tiers of spirituality then maybe we would have an out. But you know as well as I do that for the Apostle Paul and the whole Bible, every Christian is spiritual because every Christian possesses the Spirit of God as the first fruits of the benefits of redemption in Christ. So we don't get off the hook. To say you who are spiritual is to say all of you, but it is also to remind all of you that none of you are capable of doing this work apart from the Spirit of God dwelling in you, enabling you, motivating you to this kind of gentle, restorative ministry. And then there's a warning. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There's no room for spiritual pride or condescension, any holier-than-thou attitude in this. You know, it's sort of like those times when you uh, get busted for a traffic Violation and you were truly innocent. And about the time you're ready to propose that justification to the officer, you remember all of the times that you didn't get busted when you did deserve it. And then you figure, oh, well, you know. We go to one another to confront sin in the awareness that we fall short in so many ways, and God continues to tenderly restore us day after day after day. How can we be impatient and demanding of each other when we receive so much kindness and mercy? And so we need to keep watch for ourselves. And, and Jesus puts it in terms of getting the beam out of your own eyes so that you can see the speck in your neighbor's eye. You, you know how that, um, that works. And so we're reminded to watch ourselves. And of course, there's also the idea that the Whatever sin has trapped your neighbor, your brother may soon trap you as well, and so there's a need for caution in terms of some of the, of the problems that might exist. But, but that's the concern that the Lord has for us, that we beware that all of us are so easily tempted. So careful, truthful, accurate, caring confrontation, these are the things that the Lord calls us to. In the third place, you must seek your brother or sister with an eagerness, and let me emphasize that word, with an eagerness in your heart in advance to forgive. This is so critical. We go into these kind of confrontations. We practice this kind of discipline hoping and praying and eagerly desiring that it's going to bear its good fruit of repentance so that we can forgive. Here we need to jump to the latter part of the chapter. And, and notice here, these are the two parables that bracket, again, the specific instructions concerning how to go one on one, two or three on one, and perhaps finally to take it to the church. Jesus sets it up with the parable of the lost sheep, and now he rounds it off with the parable of the unforgiving slave. Verse 21. Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? (laughs) That's such an OPC question, don't you think? What are the rules? What are the limits? What are the requirements? I want to know what's expected of me so that I can fulfill it to the letter and maybe not a step beyond. Lord, how, many, how often m- m- uh, must I forgive my brother? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. <laughs> now there again, our, our inclination is to do the math. Okay, not seven times. How much is seventy times seven? That's the limit. Jesus' point is, you're asking the wrong question. And He shows that by the story that He tells. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, with his wife and children, and all that he had, and that payment would be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will, not, will, not, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. That story is so powerful All exposition can do is blunt its force. But let me say a couple of things. In the Lord's Prayer, so-called, we pray, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. What are we asking for? Jesus does not explain any of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer except this one when He says in verses 14 and 15, For if you forgive others their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Obviously, Jesus is not saying that the basis for our forgiveness from God is our willingness to forgive. The atonement of Christ, his shed blood, his righteousness is the only basis. For forgiveness, But what he is drawing attention to is that forgiveness is a package. To receive it without practicing it, to rejoice in it, to be comforted by it, to embrace it without extending it to others who need it, is incomprehensible. It cannot be. Those who have known the grace of God's forgiveness must also express the grace of God's forgiveness to others. So, some of us are like Peter. We inquire as to the minimum obligation. How many times must I forgive? And perhaps, like him, we're surprised at Jesus' reply. Not seven times, but seventy times seven. Jesus' parable, which ties our willingness to forgive to the magnitude of God's forgiveness to us, On the basis of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, should provide the permanent cure for an unforgiving heart. And I think it's really true, uh, and I mentioned this in my testimony the other day. As I have experienced more deeply and richly the forgiving mercy of God in the face of many, many offenses, large and small, it has changed my heart. It's changed the way I view other people and their failures and it must yours as well. The Pharisees were not a forgiving lot because they could say to God with a straight face, I thank you, Lord, that I don't need forgiveness. We can fall into the same trap. So God wants to motivate us to this practice of restorative confrontation which we'll talk about in the next hour. It is the Gospel at its heart that must drive you to view each other in a certain way, sinners trapped in sin, crushed under its load, in need of help, so that you will reach out, not to vindicate yourself, not to get even, not to show how much holier than others you are, but to really lay down your life for each other, moment by moment and day by day. There's nothing that takes the steam out of an argument, or a fight, or a conflict as quickly as that attitude as you approach each other. We sometimes think maybe if enough time passes and we calm down, things will just sort themselves out. It really doesn't. Time doesn't heal wounds. Forgiveness heals wounds. And in order to be forgiven, sometimes you have to be confronted. Sometimes you have to be shown your sin. And that's what we'll be talking about in the next hour. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so ashamed that having received the how we can turn around and be so demanding, so exacting, so unflinching in our demands upon each other. We really are like the guy who throws him in jail and he's not going to come out until he's paid the last penny. Lord, will you forgive us even for that and then create in us a heart that imitates the gentleness and the love of our Savior, and that we would be effective reconcilers, both on the giving end and on the receiving end, so that sin might be overcome in our midst, and its disruptive effects, not just submerged beneath the surface, but genuinely healed, to the glory and praise of your great name. Amen. We'll take a break here.